Welcome to the Hospital Finance Podcast, your go-to source for information and insights that can help you stay ahead of the challenges impacting healthcare finance. And now, the host of the Hospital Finance Podcast, Michael Passanate. Hi, it's Mike Passanate, and welcome back to the award-winning Hospital Finance Podcast. Avita Financial recently conducted research looking at perceptions of both patients and providers regarding payment preferences and concerns. Today, I'm joined by Chris Cox, Senior Vice President of Product and Strategy at Avita Financial, to discuss the results of the study and implications for health systems going forward. Chris, welcome to the show. Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me. Great, great to have you here. Chris, why don't you start out by telling us why you conducted this study and who you surveyed? Yeah, sure. Of course. Uh, so over the years, we've talked with a bunch of different provider staff all throughout the revenue cycle. You know, this includes front-level staff, managers, VPs of revenue cycle, CFOs. And what we found is that oftentimes the messaging wasn't always consistent when we asked them, you know, hey, what do your patients think about their experience uh, you know, at your uh, facility, uh, specifically around uh, paying for healthcare services? And, you know, given this inconsistency, it kind of spawned on us that, you know, why don't we just ask them ourselves? Uh, So what we did is we conducted an interview of roughly 400 patients, as well as over 100 uh, hospital directors, VPs of revenue cycle and CFOs to really get their perspective about the revenue cycle experience and patients experience in paying for their healthcare, And they kind of compared and contrasted those differences. Yeah, I love the way you did that. It's great, great to see um, those two populations and how they perceive um, payments. And, and we'll see some of that nuance as we, we go through the rest of the interview here. Um, why, don't we, why don't you tell us what some of the key findings were around patient perceptions of healthcare payments? Sure. Yeah. Um, so it was interesting. Some of it is wasn't uh, completely surprising. Um, but some there was some really interesting int- insights that we drove. Um, one of them, which I'm really happy to see, was that roughly 50% of patients actually preferred to have a discussion about their balance and actually present a payment, either pre-service or point-of-service, uh, in both cases, pre-care. Um, and that's been an initiative in healthcare um, to kind of drive that point of sale collection uh, strategy and to see that half of patients actually preferred it uh, was really exciting. And when you broke down that 50% by the different uh, generational groups, so think Gen Z, Millennial, um, Gen X, and Baby Boomers, you, you know, I don't think it's it's too crazy to think, but we saw that uh, your Gen Z and millennials vastly preferred paying, paying pre-service where your Gen X and your baby boomers preferred to pay, you know, at that, you know, when they received their first statement. Um, the two other things we learned, one, patients across the board prefer written statements, texts, and emails over phone calls. Um I thought that was interesting to see that phone calls was the least preferred method of communication with patients across the board, across all age demographics, yet it's one of the most heavily used strategies by providers uh, to get in touch with their patients. Um, So that was really interesting. 
And then kind of lastly, on the uh, from the patient side, roughly 60% of patients use cash to pay for healthcare, which I found very surprising. Um, and of the 60%, 34% of those actually had to go ask friends and family for help. So it wasn't as if they had budgeted for this healthcare experience and had a bunch of cash sitting in, in a savings account or in an HSA or FSA, and they had budgeted and planned for this. It, um, it really came down to the, the patients live in a cash-heavy world, and when the bill came up, in order to satisfy the obligation, they had to go uh, go through kind of alternative um, an alternative route to get it paid down. Yeah, I think patient responsibility is still something that everyone's coming to grips with in terms of how much they might owe. Um, and it, it is a little bit surprising and, and maybe hard to budget for still. Um, yeah. So, as you mentioned in the, in the opener, you survey providers similar types of questions and their perceptions were not always in sync with patient responses as, as we alluded to. Why don't you tell us uh, what you found uh, compared to what you, you just spoke about regarding patients? Yeah, I, I think the biggest uh, uh, kind of misconception was how patients uh, pay for their health care. Um, and the providers that we had uh, surveyed believe that the vast majority of patients used a credit card to pay for their services. Uh, I think that number was around 70%, where in reality, and I kind of mentioned earlier, that patients are living in this cash world where they get paid, uh, you know, every other Friday, and they have their expenses that they have planned out, you know, for the next two weeks or for that month, and whatever they have left over is what they have to use, uh, you know, for discretionary spend. Um, so that difference in, you know, these patients aren't using traditional forms of credit uh, to pay their healthcare providers and that they're having to, you know, they need alternative sources to pay it back, I think was really powerful. Um, and providers also overwhelmingly believe that patients wanted to pay post-care. Um, and I, I don't have the number in front of me, but off the top of my head, it was, I think, like 75% believe that patients wanted to pay when they received their first statement. Um, and that's, you know, that's aligned with how many providers have structured the revenue cycle, right? It focuses on, um, you know, getting the statements out, you know, you're having multiple statements and day one early out vendors and the such uh, to try and drive the majority of their uh, collections activity. Um, and the, the, you know, I have a third point written here. It's um, I didn't think it was nearly as powerful but we found that there was a small misalignment in how providers viewed their revenue cycle as being patient-friendly. Um, 80% of providers believed what they were doing was considered patient-friendly, uh, while uh, just 70% of patients viewed that same experience as patient-friendly. So, you know, not groundbreaking um, epiphanies here, you know, but there is still a delta where you know, providers believe they're providing that really strong patient-friendly experience and patients still believe there's a little bit of work to do. Certainly when you compare the healthcare experience to other aspects of what consumers do and how they buy things, it, it's different, right? And I think that's that, that maybe makes up some of that delta there. Yeah. Um, so one of the other interesting aspects of the survey is you 
looked at and asked these providers, how are they going to address some of these issues, right? So um, first, what I want to do, Chris, is ask you to talk a bit about hospitals and, and how they plan to address patient payments going forward uh, in terms of the top programs they're planning to implement in 2022. Okay, sure. Um, so we, uh, we conduct this survey every year with hospital CFOs and just to try and understand, you know, where's the market going? What, what are providers and CFOs thinking about and, and trying to budget for, you know, next year's change management and this was actually the first year we had done the, uh, the patient survey alongside the CFO survey. But we were pleasantly surprised to see a positive trend in migrating over to digital strategies. And, um, you know, when we conducted this um, at around the same time last year, it was all about COVID. And it was all about how do we prepare clinically? How do we prepare from the payer side? Um, how do we, uh, you know, do we just halt our revenue cycle altogether and sending statements that went away and it was more forward thinking. And I need to create a digital experience for my patient. We saw a 13% increase in interest in, in improving the digital and self-service payment options for patients and roughly a 5% growth in interest in online payment to tools and patient portals. Um, and part of that, I think, is going back to the understanding that uh, patients don't necessarily want to interact with a human. Um, I think you're seeing that across a bunch of different industries um, where self-service is becoming you know, more and more important for creating a positive consumer experience. So having the ability for patients to understand what they owe and then uh, plan accordingly and making payments on that balance in a manner that is comfortable to them on their time is really important. And I think hospitals are recognizing that and starting to um, you know, drive those initiatives forward at, at their own facilities. Chris, earlier you mentioned that uh, a lot of the payments are, are cash centric, but patients may need other ways to finance uh, their, the balances that are that are due. And one way they do that is through third-party loans, which is uh, you know, it's a fast-growing initiative. What do hospitals think of them? Yeah, no, and, it, and it's, um, it's interesting, right? Because I had mentioned earlier, you know, a lot of patients at these hospitals don't have access to traditional credit markets, right? Uh, they're not pulling out their platinum American Express cards and, and paying for treatment. Um, providers are you know, more and increasingly, you know, need to have alternative payment plans and financing programs, because as these deductibles increase and balances continue to increase that, you know, patients don't budget for this and they need help paying for it. Um, so it's an interesting question. Only 25% of providers that we polled use a third party loan, but of those providers who did, 85% of them indicate that it is an extremely effective collection strategy to drive um, cash collections and basically reduce patient liability off their books. Um, and depending on what kind of program you use, it's a really, it's a great tool because it doesn't require a ton of overhead. Um, your, the staff at the provider can facilitate or introduce the plan or financing option to the patient. 
and basically offload all of that work and overhead and not sending statements, not making phone calls, and almost divorcing the clinical and patient financial experience totally uh, to a vendor whose sole job is to optimize that experience on the collection side, um, which is uh, which is no simple task for a provider unless you have a dedicated system built to do that patient liability work, extending pay, uh, payments over time, making sure the payments are affordable, having an effective communication strategy. It, uh, that, that overhead reduction is, is a really nice kind of soft benefit um, when you combine it with just the pure financial side of being able to receive payment up front and allowing the patient to make payments over time. And I think there was also some information in the study um, around uh, AR and the difference between perceptions of how much patient AR hospitals collect versus what they actually do. Uh, what, what's what's going on there? Yeah, no, it's, it's a phenomenal question. We uh, it it really depends on who you talk to at the hospital. Um, I think the further up you go within the revenue cycle leadership team, it. it it's, it becomes harder to understand or grasp exactly how much they're collecting from patients. We found um, that the average collection rate on all balances, right? That includes your true self-pay patients and all balances after insurance uh, typically range between 12 and 24%. Um, and we've seen some in the single digits across all balances, as well as some you know, nearing that 30 to 35% range. Uh, but it's certainly not, it's the exception rather than the rule. When we polled our CFO panel, the vast majority of them indicated that they were all collecting over 30%. So there appears to be an opportunity for providers to conduct an internal assessment and identify which parts of their patient population could be better served to drive better patient pay collection performances. And Chris, we, you know, we briefly touched on third party loans and, and there's several options for how patients can finance their healthcare costs. Could you briefly discuss them and give, give the hospital some advice on what they should be looking for when considering a vendor? Yeah, sure thing. Um, so when I, when I look at this space, I, I kind of bucket it into, into three uh, payment plans, recourse loans, and non-recourse loans. Um, and while payment plans aren't uh, uh, technically financing, uh, from the patient's perspective, it's really no different. Uh, the patient is allowed to make payments over time just like they would in a financing arrangement. The biggest difference is uh, from, the, from the provider's perspective, they only, they're not receiving the cash up front and they're only getting it trickled in over time. Um, and I, and having talked with a handful of providers, uh, they seem to, you know, understand that payment plans are a necessity and they're not going anywhere. Um, but it's, it's, it's kind of a necessary evil. Um, and they want to get out of the business of, of managing those payment plans, um, because of all the overhead statementing and follow-up required to maintain a positive experience for the patient. Um, and there are some third-party vendors out there that do offer payment plans to ease that overhead, which is something where if, if you are convicted in offering a payment plan over a loan, certainly go that route. Um, 
on the lending side, there's really kind of two schools of thought in lending, uh, specifically in uh, uh, for providers and patients. It's recourse and non-recourse. With a recourse loan, uh, from the patient side, it's really no different unless they default. But effectively, what it means is the provider will have to pledge some capital up front uh, as a contingent liability on their books. And if the patient does default on the loan, the hospital effectively has to buy the loan back from the, uh, from the lender. Um, so you're temporarily transferring the risk of repayment over to the lender. But if it fails, it then comes back to the hospital and we've heard from some providers that that reconciliation process of making sure who owns the patient liability and how do you handle that that handoff in patient communications uh, can be a bit of a headache. Um, but one of the nice things about the recourse lending model is that everyone is accepted and almost for any balance. Um, so it's really all encompassing. Uh, but you don't benefit from, um, you know, transferring that risk, de-risking your portfolio, um, but still uh, accelerating the cash. Um, Non-recourse lending programs, uh, they don't require the upfront investment or the contingent liability. And if the patient defaults on the loan, the hospital gets to keep the cash in a true non-recourse um, model. Um so what that does is it effectively you're transferring all of your risk of repayment over to the lender and all of that overhead associated with working the account and never having to worry about the reconciliation of account balances and, and uh, patient experiencing the event that a default does occur. Um, one of the kind of main tenets, what is, what is the gotcha for a non-recourse program is that the uh, cost or the discount, which uh, many of them offer, are typically higher than recourse programs. But what's important when you evaluate uh, going through a recourse or a non-recourse program is making sure that instead of comparing the non-recourse and recourse fees to one another, making sure you add back your expected default rate to the recourse piece so that way you can compare them apples to apples. Great advice, Chris. If someone wanted to find out more about the studies we talked about here today or Ivita Financial, where can they go? Sure. Yeah. So you can go to our website. Uh, it's Ivita Financial, I V I T A Financial.com uh, to learn about um, the, the uh, patient and CFO surveys. We also have a handful of white papers uh, and, and past webinars that we've conducted all around um, kind of revenue cycle management optimization and patient pay strategies to um, increase cash flow and de-risk uh, hospital portfolios. Um, our services, we are, uh, we are strictly a non-recourse patient financing organization. Uh, we offer um, our patient borrowers with a zero interest financing option uh, in the form of a credit line to allow them to pay it back within three years. So how I explain it to my friends and family, it's like uh, you set up a tab at the hospital and you can continue to add balances to that tab uh, to kind of make healthcare a little bit more affordable while, while locking in a monthly payment that kind of makes sense for uh, you know, your personal situation. Um, and it's available to everyone to participate um, we, uh, we don't 
have strict underwriting guidelines. You know, it's our belief that, um, you know, everybody has a right to have, you know, receiving affordable health care. Um, so that's kind of been our mission. Chris, we appreciate all the information today. Thanks so much for joining us on the Hospital Finance Podcast. Of course. Thanks for having me, Mike. I appreciate it. This concludes today's episode of the Hospital Finance Podcast. For show notes and additional resources to help you protect and enhance revenue at your hospital, visit Bessler.com forward slash podcasts. The Hospital Finance Podcast is a production of Bessler. Smart about revenue, tenacious about results.